Grab your Bibles. We've got a lot of ground to cover. We're going to start in Matthew 4, verse 12. Hold up your Bibles when you get there. Matthew 4, verse 12 through 17. If you'll notice, not all Bibles have these, but, um, but most Bibles do these little subheadings at the beginning of paragraphs and sections. And um, this subheading reads, Jesus begins his ministry. And I want to talk today about how that is the lamest subheading in the history of subheadings. Okay? Because this passage signals nothing less than the promised dawn of redemption for all people. A stunning reversal of fortunes for the hopelessly lost. A kingdom of peace and feasts established by the Son of God Himself. Amen. Better would it have read, A thrill of hope the weary world rejoices for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. So, read with me, starting in verse 12. Now, when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Okay, now before we actually get into the text, I want to talk to you about maps and why maps matter, okay? Maps and why maps matter. Okay, you probably, if you have an average Bible, you might have maps in the back. If you don't have maps in the back of your Bible, no big deal, Google's got a lot of maps, okay? Just type in Israel when Jesus was alive or something, and you can find... Some decent maps. So, right, this is what I did to find this one. Okay? Um, now, the reason I'm pointing you towards maps is that sometimes authors of the Scriptures mention locations, and you don't really need to understand exactly where relative to other cities or exactly where relative to other regions this story is unfolding. You get a general idea from the narrative um, what's happening, and a, a map may not be absolutely necessary. However... Sometimes authors make a big deal of locations, and sometimes the narrative pivots on locations. And when you start to see those signals, and what I mean when I say those signals is when you start to see an author mention the same location several times, or that location relative to other locations, or that location in the surrounding areas, it's probably a good time to get out a map. All right? And what I want to show you on this map right here is Galilee... And Judea, okay, 
I don't know if you can see this. You don't really need to see it. There's a purple blob up there. See that purple blob right next to that blue blob? That blue blob is the Sea of Galilee, and right next to that, to that blue blob is a purple blob that says Galilee. Okay? Now, if you follow the map south, you're going to see Judea. All right? And Judea is, is the region within which Jerusalem is. Okay? Now, what you probably, uh, what, what is helpful to know at this point is that right next to Judea is Perea. Okay, these are Roman provinces after the Roman occupation of Israel. And Perea is, is, is divided, Judea and Perea are divided by the Jordan River. And John the Baptist's ministry was actually in Perea, and Jesus was actually dwelling in Judea. Okay, now, uh, neither of these places are very far from Jerusalem. This, don't think the United States when you see Israel. Think Rhode Island, Okay. Um, and so these are actually pretty close together, which is why John's ministry drew the attention of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Okay? Um, so anyways, you see this map, and what you really need to know is that John has just been arrested in Perea. And Jesus learns about this arrest in Judea, and he heads north to Galilee. And I want to know why. I'm wondering why Jesus heads north? And I think the answer is in this passage. Let's keep reading to verse 13. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Okay. Okay, we need to look back at our map. I want you to see two more things on this map. You see this big red line that starts in the, uh, in, about in the middle, uh, a little bit right of the middle on the map, and it goes all the way down to the bottom uh, left-hand side. You see that red line? That's a major Roman road, okay? And it's called the Way of the Sea. This is not the Way of the Sea referencing Sea of Galilee. This is actually the Way of the Sea referencing the Mediterranean Sea, okay? And if a trader, for instance, was headed from uh, Abilene to Egypt, he would take what road? The Way of the Sea, okay? Now, you'll also notice that, so there's these two blobs, these blue blobs, um, and at the bottom is the Dead Sea, and at the top is the Sea of Galilee. In between them is a river. Anybody want to guess what the river's name is? The Jordan River. Okay, now, let me ask you a question. From the Israelites' perspective, is Galilee beyond the Jordan? If Galilee is closer to Judea, than the Jordan River is, would the Israelites say, oh, go to Gal Galilee beyond the Jordan? They wouldn't. See, both of these terms, way of the sea and beyond the Jordan, are from the perspective of the nations. You see what I mean? When, when somebody is giving directions to Galilee, and you're from Syria, you say, take the way of the sea and stop when you get just beyond the Jordan. See what I'm saying? 
What's interesting about both of these uh, both of these location notes is that they're from the perspective not of the Jews, but they're actually from the perspective of the nations. Okay, it's as if you're giving somebody directions from Galilee who lives in the Middle East or who lives in ancient Rome. Does it make sense? You tracking with me? Okay. So, Israel is here described by the prophet Isaiah from the perspective of the nations and also, notably, from the perspective of exiled Israel. All right? Okay, I think we have what we need. Let's, uh, let's go to Isaiah 9. This passage pivots around Matthew's citation of Isaiah 9. So I want you to turn in your Bible to Isaiah 9, and we're going to read together. Isaiah 9. Let's start in verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Okay. To grasp, I think, what's going on here, Isaiah houses this prophecy in this message of hope for this region. And he calls this region the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Okay, And I think to understand this, we have to place this prophecy in its historical, in, in its historical context. So Israel, if you've read the Old Testament, you know that Israel is perpetually sinning against God perpetually breaking the covenant. And God is perpetually sending prophets to warn them. Turn, repent. There's wrath coming for you if you don't repent and return to the Lord, right? And, and they won't have it, okay? They just continue in sin. So, God removes His people from the land. Actually, it's really fascinating if you place the history of Israel right against the, the story of Adam and Eve. The same thing happens to both parties. Adam and Eve sin against God and they're cast out of the garden. Okay, They're cast out of the land. In the same way, Israel perpetually sins against God. And so finally, God sends Israel out of the land. Okay, And He sends them into exile. Now, what we don't often reflect on is that, is that these, this land didn't just sit empty. Okay? When, when the people of Israel were cast out of the land, they were replaced by the nations. Okay? So, um, as, as late as 167 B.C., we know, because it's written in the book of Maccabees, which is an inter- intertestamental book, you don't need to worry about that, but we know that as, as late as 167 B.C., there were so few Israelites who lived in Galilee this entire region of Galilee, that they could be easily transported in case of war. What I mean is, like, there were so few that you knew where to go, and you could rally them together and quickly move them out of harm's way in case an enemy was coming to destroy or to, to oppress. That's how few Israelites lived here. Otherwise, it was the nations. So we now know, um, what Israel, 
uh, what Isaiah means when he calls Galilee of the nations. Okay. Now, by about Christ's time, uh, everybody just uh, assumes by virtue of of notes in different documents, by virtue of Josephus' books, everybody kind of assumes that the population is about half Israelites and about half everybody else. Okay? So, Galilee of the nations is an important note in this text, and it's an important note in Matthew. Matthew actually translates the Hebrew, Galilee of the Gentiles. Okay? All right, now stick that in your pocket and let's keep moving. Verse 2, the people who walked in darkness. <laughs> the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. Okay, some more information to put this in context. Galilee was the first region to fall to the Assyrians, okay? When God sent the Assyrians to exile the people of Israel, to to destroy their homes and to send them into slavery, when God sent the the wicked Assyrian armies to, to sack Israel and to take the people out of the land, Galilee was the first nation or was the first region to fall. And it was also the first region to be occupied by Assyrian uh, peoples. Okay? And so, basically, the, the, the tip of the iceberg of the exile was Galilee. Galilee was the first to be taken and the first to be removed and the first to be occupied by the nations. When the people of Israel, in terror, realized that all the promises of God and all the wrath of God that was headed for them because they were in sin and they had violated the covenant, all of the curses of the law that were coming, when they realized that that was unfolding right here and right now, the tip of that spear was Galilee. Okay? And so Galilee, from this point forward, is recognized as a symbol of God's wrath and God's judgment. Now, this is why Isaiah's message is so powerful. Listen, there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. Who's he referring to? The people who walked in darkness. Who's he referring to? Those lost and broken in sin. The exiled people of God. Those without hope because they had broken the law and they had earned the curses of the law. These people are the recipient audience of this prophecy which begins, there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. There is hope. There is hope for the exiled people of God. All right, keep reading. Can we uh, jump up to the slide that reads, You have multiplied the nations? This is the first time I included maps, and I think it might have broke something. (laughs) That's cool. All right, let's start on verse 3. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. And they rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. As they are glad when they divide the spoil. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. And they rejoice before you as with joy at 
the harvest, what we see here unfolding, this promise is a promise of a reversal of fortunes. Like this, this people, the remnant of Israel, the remnant faithful of Israel is promised, you will be multiplied, okay? From remnant to multitude. And it says, increase joy. You will go from sorrow to joy. And Isaiah says, joy at the harvest. And these people have been poor slaves for 70 years or more. Joy at the harvest. You will have feasting in place of poverty. So this complete reversal of outcomes. Keep reading. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. This is just three different ways to say you slaves will be freed. Do you understand? Three different ways to say you slaves will be freed. Your yoke, okay? Just like the oxen are, are, are the yoke is placed on the oxen's shoulders so they can carry the load, right? That, that yoke is broken. And this rod, the staff that's mentioned, this is what taskmasters use to abuse their people. And this oppressor, that's the taskmaster himself. So you've got this exiled people who are, who are bearing the curse of the law and they have no hope and they can only see for their future slavery and poverty and pain. And God says, feasting and hope and restoration and broken yokes and broken staffs and broken rods. And I think this is my favorite part. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Okay, I read this initially and I thought this was uh, a promise of wrath. That is not what's going on in this passage. Do you remember the, the passage that says, uh, you're going to beat your swords into plowshares? What's the point of that passage? When the kingdom comes, you don't have any more need of a sword. Right? Here you get this picture, very similar, where they're like, what are we going to do with these war boots? What are we going to do with our, with our soldiers' garments and our armor? Well, there's no use for them anymore, but we like to stay warm at night. Why don't we just burn them? It's fuel for the fire. Right? This is a promise of a world without war. And this fuel for fire is a fire to warm your hands and to cook your food by. So Isaiah prophesies a message of hope to those lost in exile. A reversal of fortunes, freedom for captives, and a kingdom of peace. Isaiah promises a restoration of all good things. How? How how can this be? By what means is he going to accomplish all of these radical promises? How? What, What can fix all that's broken? Who can restore all that was lost? You weren't going to expect that if this is the first time you're reading Isaiah. You're flipping the page and you're like, how? What's going to happen? What's going to happen? For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. 
A child? A, a child? Not just any child. A son. A child is born and his name is Wonderful Counselor. There's, okay, I'm not going to be able to get into all that is loaded into these names. Isaiah is using these names on purpose. And he's been building into these names all the theology of the Old Testament. All the history of the Old Testament. So I'm just going to give you sneak previews. And if you want to spend time this week following cross-references, please do. This Wonderful Counselor, this is a reference to Solomon. This is a promise of a better Solomon. Who was Solomon? What was Solomon's chief characteristic besides being rich? Wisdom. And yet in that wisdom, he failed. He worshipped idols. And his kingdom was split in half. This This is a king better than Solomon. And his counsel, this word wonderful means supernatural. His his wisdom, the wisdom of the coming king is going to be supernatural. People are going to listen to him teach and sit in awe. And that happens in Matthew. Okay, mighty God. We had already just, we just read the promise of Emmanuel. God with us. God will be with us. The same God who can deliver by, by sending stones from the sky. By sending fire from the sky, the same God who could stop the sun is going to be with us. Everlasting Father, He will embody. This King, like David was called to, will embody the King's reign. He will, he will embody the Father's reign. The, the King of Israel was always supposed to be a representative of God's reign. Okay? And this King will embody the Father's reign. Prince of Peace. He will restore all things and he will, he, will, he will be victor on behalf of his people. Now, I want to stop and circle back really quick. There's a lot of theological discussions surrounding everlasting Father. We sometimes read this passage as if Isaiah is suggesting that Jesus the Son is the Father or something like this. There's a whole lot of questions revolving Around this passage, what can he mean? Like Jesus is the Son. What does it mean that he's the everlasting Father? How does that work? Uh, This all resolves in one simple passage. I'm going to read it to you. It's from John. Philip said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I don't speak on my own authority. For the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or else believe on account of the works themselves. What does it mean? This child will be called everlasting Father. It means he will fulfill all the callings of the King of Israel, namely to represent the Father and to, to reign as his, as his embodiment. All right, let's pick up in Isaiah 9, 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to, to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth 
and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Wes was right. If ever you doubt that God's promises are true, if ever you doubt that something might be too good to be true or might be impossible, you just wait for the Lord to promise by His zeal, by His might. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. That is a sure promise that the kingdom is coming. And it's a sure promise that the Son will establish the throne of David and that there will be peace and justice and righteousness forever. Okay. So I want to summarize Isaiah's prophecies this way. Hope of redemption dawns for those who walk in darkness. Let me read that again. Hope of redemption dawns for those who walk in darkness. The Son of God is coming. He will rescue the exile from slavery and He will place them in a kingdom of peace forever. Alright, now, let's look back at Matthew 4. Let's look back at Matthew 4. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What kingdom? What kingdom is he referring to? It's the kingdom of Isaiah's prophecy, where war will cease. Where slaves will be freed. And where they'll be rejoicing and feasting. Praise and joy in place of sorrow. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What is Jesus doing here? Fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy. What is Jesus doing here? Jesus is issuing an invitation to prepare for the kingdom. Of Isaiah 9. Jesus' call to repent is a call to ready yourself for a kingdom without slavery, suffering, or war. It's an invitation to ready yourself for a kingdom of peace and feasts and rejoicing established by God's mighty, wise, and peaceful Son. That's what this word means. That's what this phrase means. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Hear the invitation behind the call to repentance. Ready yourselves. The kingdom's almost here. Okay, now why is he doing it in Galilee? Wouldn't it seem like Jerusalem would be a more appropriate place to begin? I think he's doing it because he's preparing a people from every tribe and tongue and nation. Let me be clear. I think Jesus is issuing an invitation for anyone lost in darkness. Anyone exiled because of sin. Anyone immersed in the world hurting and hopeless. I'm making the claim that Jesus is calling everyone to repentance. Jesus is inviting everyone to the kingdom. And here's my proof. Okay, Here's my proof that this is not... Merely a call to repentance for the people of Israel, but rather this is a call to repentance 
for Israel and the rest of the world. Okay, here's my proof. One, the entire structure of Matthew is pointed towards a gospel for the nations. All right, chapter one, the nations join the line of Christ. Chapter two, the nations herald Jesus' birth. The first people to herald Jesus' birth are the nations. Chapter eight, Jesus, is, Jesus praises the faith of a Roman. Do you know what he says? I've never seen faith like this in Israel. Right? Chapter 15, Jesus praises the faith of a Canaanite. My favorite story in Matthew. I can't wait to get there. Chapter 2, after Jesus journeys to Jerusalem, we're going to talk about that in a second. After Jesus journeys to Jerusalem, he, he tells a parable to the religiously proud about a wedding feast where the invitation will be issued to the nations because his people didn't show up. All right? Now, one more time, get out your map. One more time, okay? I want to show you something. I think this is brilliant. I think this is on purpose. I think we're supposed to see it, okay? Jesus begins his ministry. Yes, the subheading is technically accurate. Jesus, is be- Jesus begins his ministry in what the author of, of, of Matthew and and. His name is Matthew. I don't know why I say the author of Matthew. What Matthew says and what Isaiah says, Galilee of the nations, Galilee of the Gentiles. That's where he starts his ministry. And then he does all of his ministry. So Matthew traces his ministry step by step. And Matthew, ministry begins in in Galilee and it stays there. Chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10. All the Sermon on the Mount. Chapter 11, chapter 12. Chapter 13, chapter 14, chapter 15, chapter 16, chapter 17, chapter 18. All in Galilee. The miracles, the people rushing, the the broken bread that feeds the 5,000. All in Galilee. Chapter 18, he tells his disciples, it's time to start heading to Jerusalem. Pacing. Chapter 19. Chapter 20. Arrives in Jerusalem. Faces the persecution of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Faces torture and death. Carries the burden of his people on his shoulders and absorbs the wrath of God. Rises from the dead. Three days later, guess where he goes to send his disciples to the nations? Back up north. Right? Jesus ascends to heaven right after saying, I am with you, even to the end of the age. Now go to Judea and Samaria, and to where? Everywhere. Everywhere. And he does it in Galilee. The structure of Jesus' ministry is, is facing the nations. Okay? Not just Israel, but everyone. Okay. So, what is this passage mean? I think you can summarize the meaning of this paragraph with these words. Christ's work signals the bright dawn of redemption for all peoples. The kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of peace and the kingdom of freedom and the kingdom of rejoicing and the kingdom of gladness and the kingdom of restoration is coming And Jesus is calling everyone to repent and prepare. 
And you are included in that everyone. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. So repent. That's a message for you. So repent. Repent. Soberly reflect on your dark thrills. These dark thrills, by the way, are the reason you are under the yoke of slavery. Right? You find yourself, you wake up in the morning on your soberest moments, you find yourself in chains, you find yourself unable to move, you find yourself grieving and guilty. Those dark thrills are what puts you there. So take those dark thrills and lay them aside the kingdom of peace. Amen? Choose this day. Choose today. Choose today that the kingdom of peace is worth missing out on some cheap thrills that are going to get you in trouble anyways. That's what repent means. Turn to Christ. You Okay, look, what I, what I mean when I say repent is, is not merely stop sinning. That's impossible for you unless you're in Christ. When we find ourselves facing a wall and we can't stop chasing our cheap thrills, even though we know the kingdom is better, we turn to Christ because He bore our sins on our behalf and He reconciled us to, to God. And and anybody who turns to Him can have the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is how you defeat sin. So turn to Christ. That's what repent means. You want to ready yourselves for the kingdom? Turn to Christ. And I'm not just talking to people who are not believers. You, You should never stop turning to Christ. Okay? So repent and prepare. I made up a word here, I think. Um, we'll talk about that in a second. Think about the kingdom. Okay. Uh, I have had a lot of beef for the, uh, the, the, the idiom, they're too heavenly minded to be earthly good. That's impossible. You cannot be too heavenly minded. Heavenly mindedness is what makes your contribution to your culture and your contribution to your neighbors and your service to your church poignant and powerful. Okay? So, think about the kingdom. Get in your Bible. Read about the kingdom. Hope in the kingdom. Second, pray kingdomly. That's the word I think I made up. Maybe it's not. It's, I mean, it's fine. It's not merely that we're praying, come Lord Jesus, although that should be your prayer. Come Lord Jesus. We yearn for the kingdom. But pray that a people would be prepared for the kingdom. Pray that, that uh, uh, servants would be sent to, to reap the, the harvest. The fields are white. Live for the kingdom. Your time and your money and your attention, this is the best investment. Okay? And then, 
when all else fails, die to establish the kingdom. I don't mean just physically die. I mean every day when you hit the wall where you're like, this person drives me nuts. Or when you're like, uh, I, I, I don't have anything left. And yet Christ is calling me to faithfulness that I can't do. I'm going to be exhausted tomorrow. Die. Anybody who's unwilling to pick up their cross and follow Jesus isn't suited for the kingdom. I'm sorry. That's hard words. But it's a kingdom worth dying for. Okay. So repent and prepare and rejoice. And rejoice. For when the kingdom comes, suffering will cease. We say things like this all the time. I just want to tease it out for two seconds. There will be no more pain. There will be no more cancer. There will be no more loss and sorrow and weeping. No more frustration. That's all gone in the kingdom. And if you're in Christ, you've been promised that kingdom. So you have a bad day. Yes, run to the Lord in prayer, but also remember that these days are numbered. And the feast will begin. Do you like food? I mean, I don't know anybody who doesn't like at least some kind of food, even if it's like uh, when I met my wife, uh, her, one of her favorite snacks was to take hot Cheetos and, and pour uh, nacho cheese on them. And then get, it gets better. She would, she would actually crumple up the bag so that the hot Cheetos would get a little soggy because she liked that texture. You're welcome. (laughs) You're welcome. (laughs) Doesn't matter what kind of foods you love. That food is just a foreshadow of the food we'll have at the wedding supper of the Lamb. And it's not about the food. The food itself, even the food at the wedding supper is just an opportunity to praise Christ our King. Wonderful counsel. In a kingdom that will never end, before a king called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. That's what awaits us. Our big brother and our king. Let's praise him. Amen.